0: and Daniel chapter 4, Psalm 115 and Daniel chapter 4, and welcome to week 5 of a series that we are calling Behold, um, that we are walking through different attributes of God, and as we said from the beginning, these attributes are given to us by revelation of God, so God is making himself known, but these attributes are a collection of descriptions from scripture concerning who God is and who God forever will be. as we saw last week, and this is a thing we cannot do and must not do, we cannot compartmentalize um, the attributes of God, as if God, depending on the circumstances, depending on what's going on, um, is unsure of which attribute or attributes um, He will display and He has to kind of choose last minute. Um, that is not the picture that we get from Scripture. God displays all of His attributes and all that He does, or... In the words of Tozer from last week, all that God does always agrees with all that God is. So this morning we come to the sovereignty of God. Um, It's a deep, deep subject which is all about God being God. And the concept of sovereignty is scary at times because um, it's so not like us. And what I mean by that is this, in our need for control... Um, we prefer a God that we can manage. We want a God that, who is on our beck and call. We oftentimes, I was talking to somebody this past week, and their concept of God is this. We envision God like a rabbit's foot. We break Him out when we have an issue or a decision to be made. We, we rub Him really good, we make our decision, and then we put Him right back up. And in some twisted way, we think we're more secure When we have God figured out or when we can control um, God. Yet, sovereignty says you're not going to figure out this God. Sovereignty says you can't get to the bottom of this God. He's more than we can ever even imagine. And that's the way it must be. Let me just say this. When it comes to how God directs um, the people, the, the events of history, God doesn't need our permission. So let me say it again, God doesn't need your or my permission to do anything that he does. In fact, God doesn't have to explain to us anything that he does. Whether it be on a macro or a micro level, the the world is constantly under his control. He does whatever he pleases, whenever he wishes. Our problem with sovereignty is when it begins to become personal, Or kind of in the words of Spurgeon, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. And what that means is this. If we were to speak of the stars, that would be one thing. Most of us have no problem saying God is in control of the stars because we know that we had nothing to do with that. We know that we don't do anything. We didn't create the stars. We don't sustain them. So therefore, we would be able to say that's all God. But to say in the other sense that God is in charge of all that happens to us the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, the positive, the negative, um, that he is in charge of all of that and that he is working all of that um, according to his plan and not ours, seems like another story. When there is trouble in our lives, we want to know who is running the show. When there is trouble and difficulty that enters into our lives, we want to know who is in charge. And according to the word of God, the sovereign God alone is in charge. He is ruling, he is overruling, and he is reigning. I love the words of of Tozer from his book, um, and I just lost the book, uh, Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, God is said to be absolutely free. Because no one and nothing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. Now listen to these questions. Can we imagine the Lord God of hosts having to request permission of anyone or to apply for anything to a higher body? To whom would God go for permission? Who is higher than the highest? Who is mightier than the Almighty? Whose position antedates that of the eternal? And whose throne would God kneel? Where is the greater one to whom we must appeal? Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last, and beside there is no God. So let me just be very clear this morning as to why I worship this God as the one and only. Why I worship Him and why we worship Him as the sovereign God of the universe. Think about this. God is He's the creator God, the unique God, the one and only God. He is before all things. He created all things. He upholds all things. He is above all things. He actually knows all things. He controls all things. He can do all things. He accomplishes all. All things according to His purposes. He rules over everything. He controls the visible and the invisible. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is outside of time. He is all-knowing, infinite, self-sufficient, holy. He is the loving creator of all things and all that is and forever will be. We worship the sovereign God of the universe. His plans, His purposes cannot be stopped. This is our God. Behold the sovereign one. That is what we're doing. We're beholding the one who is sovereign. So let's turn and look at the word this morning. And this is going to be, like I said, the kind of the jumping off point, but if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, we're going to read Psalm 113, or excuse me 115, verse 3, and then Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. So we're going to begin at Psalm 115, verse 3, and it says this. Our God is in heavens or in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Let me say it again. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And just note as you turn over to Daniel 4, it did not say he does what pleases us, he does what pleases himself. And then look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Daniel 4, 35, when you get there all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That would be us. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And listen to this. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the God that we serve. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we want to recognize today who you are. And we want to understand today who we are. Lord, we are not sovereign. You are sovereign. We are subordinate. Lord, we are under you. You are our God. And Lord, we need you. Show us today who you are. Show us today, God, why we can trust you in every area of our lives. And help us to leave here trusting you more. God, just speak to us through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And we may be seated. So the word sovereignty, let me just kind of give you the dictionary version. It means above all, superior to all, the greatest, supreme in rank, holding a position of authority. And this is the God that we serve. He is infinite. He is self-sustaining. The word sovereign means that God needs no one or nothing. God needs no one or he needs nothing. Before there was time, before there were planets, before there was the existence of anything... He was before and he will be after. This is who he is. He is the sovereign ruler of all that ever was, all that ever will be. And this is a huge truth statement for us. That God is sovereign over all of those things. Or to kind of summarize it before we break it down. The sovereignty of God separates the God of the Bible from all other religion And their gods, or their truth claims, or their philosophies. This is what sets our God apart. In the words of A.W. Pink, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. He is the Most High, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God. Or in the words of Charles Swindoll, God is able to do what he pleases with whomever he chooses, whenever he wishes. This is a picture of him. God is sovereign. We are not. And that's not just theology, brothers and sisters. That's our identity. God is sovereign. We're subordinate. He is sovereign. We are not. He is in absolute control over everything. He's absolute. there's nothing he cannot do. And I know some people, and especially uh, people who just like to argue, want to get in and say, well, can God do everything? And if God can do everything, then can God sin? And can God make a rock so big that he can't even pick it up? Because if he can't, then he can't do it. And people like to come up with stupid questions. And what I always say is this. I always say, God can do everything um, except for do anything that lessens who he is as God. And the fact that God can't sin doesn't mean um, that God is lesser of a God. It means that he's more majestic. And so this is what we hold on to. So what we want to do this morning is spend our remaining time together unpacking three uh, powerful truths um, concerning and pertaining to our powerful and our sovereign God. The first truth is this. God reveals his sovereignty through his power. He reveals his sovereignty through his power. Power In Psalm 93, a few of the verses from 1 through 4, it says, The Lord reigns. He reigns in majesty. He has put on strength as His belt. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of of old. You are from everlasting. And then it says this, The floods have lifted up their voice. It's talking about the floods, and then it says, Mightier than the thunders, mightier than the waves, the Lord on high is mighty. This is our God. God's sovereignty is pervasive. It is universal. It is over everything that we will freely acknowledge. And it is over things that we fail to even think about. Let me give you a quick biblical tour of God's sovereignty and just hold on really tight because we're going to move really quickly through these Um, and I'm just going to give you the verses and you can just write them down if you're taking notes but first God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over all natural events. Jeremiah 10 12-13 says it is he who made the earth by his power he utters his voice there is a tumult of waters in the heavens he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is sovereign over all natural things. He's sovereign over every storm, every tsunami, every earthquake. He is sovereign over it. God is also sovereign over nations and kings. Job 12, 23 says, He makes the nations great. He destroys them. He enlarges nations. He leads them away. Or from the king's standpoint, Proverbs 21, 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And it says, He turns it wherever He will. He's sovereign over nations and kings. He's also sovereign over angels and demons. Job 1, this picture um, of Job and what happens with Satan and God being over it. In Job 1, 6 and 7, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, and the Lord kind of presented Job as the one that Satan should take on, knowing um, God allowing this, knowing Job's heart and integrity. So the picture is God is sovereign over Angels, He's sovereign over everything that Satan and the demons do. God is also sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hands. This is another one that's maybe hard for us to understand. God is sovereign over disabilities. Exodus 4, God says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And we think about disabilities and we have to understand all that God does um, always equates with Psalm 139. We are, every single person is fearfully and wonderfully made. God is sovereign over the suffering of his people. Think about James 5, speaking about Job again. It says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen, get this, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Everything we see in the book of Job is the purpose, the plan of the Lord. God is sovereign over everything, even the unjust death of his son. So the death of his son didn't happen by accident. It happened because God willed it to happen. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, meaning Jesus. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. It was God's plan. It was his will that Christ come and lay down his life for the sins of mankind. God is also sovereign over our salvation. Jonah 2.9 says salvation belongs to the Lord. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be God's doing, not ours. So understand that. Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. And get this, it is not your own doing. You cannot save yourself. God is sovereign over it. And God is sovereign over every life in this room and every life in this world. Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand or that will prevail. Or as James tells us in James 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will do such and such in a town and spend a year there and trade and make it profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Bible is so clear, God is sovereign. But people begin to wonder well, if God is sovereign over every event and everything, does that mean that we are just robots? Are we just puppets? Do we have any say over anything? And let me just say this the Bible is very clear God is sovereign, and we are responsible. We are responsible. God has given us choice and decisions, and we are responsible for those decisions. A few months ago, uh, in, in our time together, Jordan shared an illustration that we read in, in Tozer's book, and uh, The Sovereignty of God. I want to share it with you again, believing that. Most of you have probably forgotten it already, and we need to hear things probably 12 times before we even begin to understand it or to remember it. But Tozer tells this story. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of God's sovereignty. On board the liner are several scores of passengers. They are not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, they sleep, they play, they lounge about on the deck as they please. But... All the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict each other. So it is, he says, I believe with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered towards the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which He purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. So God's will is going to be accomplished. It is going towards its destined and its predetermined goal. And you and I, we move around in that but never outside of that so the picture is god reveals his sovereignty through his power but then secondly god reveals his sovereignty through his promises god reveals his sovereignty through his promises and we can kind of what i'm choosing to do right now is put these promises in two categories first concerning the prophecies of god so what god has decreed and secondly concerning the declarations of god what has what god has promised that he will do for his people Even in response to the obedience or disobedience of his people. But let's begin with prophecies. I don't know if we understand this, but almost one third of this book is prophetic. One third of this book, although many of these prophecies have already been fulfilled historically, um, almost one out of every three verses in the Bible is God saying, without fail, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. The prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, most of all of them concern the second coming of Christ, can be trusted. Why? Because the first ones, all the other promises have come true. And here's what we have to understand. Numerous predictions about the coming of the Messiah were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. He was born of a virgin according to Isaiah 7:14. He was born in Bethlehem um, according to Micah 5:2. He suffered and died though he were innocent according to Isaiah 53. Additional prophecies have been fulfilled as well. Jesus predicted 40 years before it happened that the Uh, Temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. He does that in Matthew 24. Guess what? It was destroyed. Prophecy is important. It shows that God is sovereign over all the events of history um, and whatever he predicts will come to pass. Listen to Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 8. It says this, God is talking, he says, thus says the Lord, I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. So God is saying, who's like me? Who's a God like me? Let him do this. And God says, let let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you? From of old and declared it is there a god beside me so god basically says here's how i set myself apart as god i know the beginning i know the end i know every detail in between and he says ask your god see if your god can tell you what's coming because i can this is the picture of god god knows the end he knows the from the beginning everything in the middle because he is in control yet not only does god make promises prophetically he also keeps promises relationally. I was listening to um, Brother Frank pray this morning and, and, and saying, God has promised and never leave us or forsake us. Think about the famous promise of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good. All things work together for good. You have to be sovereign in order to make a promise like that. Right? You've got to be in control. That means if God is going to work every detail for good, He needs to know every detail. He needs to know every circumstance. He needs to know every motive. He needs to know what is going to happen tomorrow and the next day after that so that He might be able to weave it all together for good. And here's what we know, brothers and sisters, that God at times permits tragedies. He allows the unexplainable to come into our lives, and He even allows the unwanted to come into our lives. At times, He even allows Satan to unleash mayhem mayhem in our lives, but He will never allow Satan to triumph. He will never allow Satan to receive the victory. The isolated events of evil um, happen in our lives, but ultimately God is able to turn them for good. We see this in a little small way in our own lives. So think about this. Most of us this morning in this room, or maybe some of us in this room this morning, drank a cup of coffee. And I, I don't know if it happened today, but sometimes we get up and we just need that cup of coffee and we drink it and we say, hmm, that was good. That was just a good cup of coffee. Can anybody relate to that? Amen. So, but what are we saying when we say this coffee is good? Are we saying, uh, as we drink it, are we saying, man, the coffee maker is good? Or if you're really fancy, you're saying the barista is good who made the coffee? Are you saying the beans themselves are good? Are you saying the grinding of the beans was good? Are you saying hot water is good? No, you're not saying any of those things um, alone. Basically, what you're saying is that good, the good of the coffee happens when all of the ingredients come together. And so the point is what we're saying is when we say that God works all things for good, he brings all the ingredients of our lives together and he works it not for our bad, but for our good. And here's the beautiful thing. Nothing in the Bible would cause us to ever call murder good or assault good or cancer good. Or terrorist attacks good. The Bible would never allow us to call those things good. All of these things are terrible calamities born out of a fallen world. Yet every message in this book compels us to believe that God will take all of the ingredients, even the bad, and he will bring good out of them. And here's the thing that God reminded me this week. It is only God that gets to define what is good. We don't. That is our problem. When we go through things, we say, Romans eight twenty eight God will work it for good. This doesn't feel like good. Well, brothers and sisters, we don't get to determine what is good. God does. And if we get to, here's what we choose. When we say good, we only think of health, wealth, and comfort. That's all we think about. Yet, what's God's definition of good? Think about it. What was God's definition of good with Jesus? The good that he worked in Jesus' life included struggles and storms and even death. Yet God worked it all together for the greatest good, for his glory and for our salvation. God reveals his sovereignty through his promises. And that leads us to the next truth, which is this. God reveals his sovereignty through his son. Through his son. I want us to turn our attention now to the Christmas story. We begin Christmas season. And let me be clear today. The Christmas story didn't just begin with Mary and Joseph. It actually, the beginning of it was from the creation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit knew that Adam would fall knew that Adam and Eve would sin, causing everyone after them to be born in sin, requiring a Savior to come and be a perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath towards sin and sinners. A few weeks ago, we looked at the covenant of redemption in Ephesians 1 where before the beginning of time, God the Father said, I will plan the salvation of man. God the Son said, I will step forth and purchase man's salvation. And God the Holy Spirit says, I will seal all believers in their salvation for all of eternity. And think about this, when sin entered the world, God responds in Genesis 3.15 with what has been called the first mentioned principle. Meaning right when sin entered the world, um, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a Savior. So sin comes and God says a Savior is coming. Just listen to this. God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, meaning that Satan has offspring and her offspring, meaning she will have children. And he says this, he, her offspring will bruise your head. That is a fatal wound. And then he says to the serpent and you will bruise his heel, not a fatal wound. And we know that um, Satan would nip at the heels of Jesus. He would die. He would conquer death. And in conquering death, he would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus knew that only he in the flesh could meet the Father's requirements. And he voluntarily agreed to sacrifice himself to be the savior of everyone who will believe in him. And then when we get to Galatians chapter 4, it just makes sense because it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So basically this, when God determined that the time was right, God sent his son to us. So on that first Christmas night, some 2,000 years, years ago, God pulled off a jaw-dropping display of sovereignty. This past week, I was riding in the car with Malachi, and he brought up Christmas. And I said, buddy, what do we celebrate at Christmas? And he said, Jesus. And I said, yes, Jesus, God sent Jesus to die for our sins. And of course, he said, what's that? And I said, when we do bad stuff. And he goes, oh, and then, he, and then he said, well, when did Jesus come? Yesterday? And I said, no, he came 2,000 years ago. And he said, holy cow, that was a long time ago. And I said, yes, it was. But the picture is Jesus came. He died for our sins. And he is alive in heaven. And Malachi said, you mean he lives with Uncle Jack? Because we always tell him Uncle Jack's in heaven. I said, no, yes, but Uncle Jack's there because of Jesus. And, and Malachi said, so... Anybody can go see Jesus in heaven? And I said, anybody who loves him and anybody who believes in him will be in in heaven with him. And Malachi said, well, I love Jesus. And I said, I know you do, buddy, but let me tell you something better. He loves you. And here's the beautiful thing. 2,000 years ago, God did something displaying His sovereignty in a way that we often yawn at, but we shouldn't. The arrival of the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah was an amazing demonstration of the fact that God is in control. God was moved by His own mercy to sovereignly orchestrate a plan to save us. That first Christmas night, God displayed several demonstrations of his sovereignty. Let me just give you a few. They won't be on the screen. But let me give you four um, ways that God demonstrated his sovereignty that first Christmas night. First, God orchestrated salvation globally. He orchestrated salvation globally. So think about Luke 2. We are told in Luke 2 that Caesar um, decreed that taxes of all the world should, should happen, of all his world. So when Caesar decreed a census in Luke 2, Caesar wasn't thinking in that moment, humanity is hopelessly and helplessly lost and it needs a Savior. That's not what he was thinking. He wasn't remembering or believing in the promises of Christ and he wasn't seeking to help God bring it all about. No, all he was thinking is, I wonder how many people I rule over and I wonder how many people I'm able to tax That's all he was thinking in that moment. But here's what we know from God's standpoint. God is the one who made it all happen. His plan for the salvation of mankind would not be diverted. It's frightening sovereignty when you think about it, but it's also comforting sovereignty. That God was sending a Savior to the world, which would be, as we keep reading Luke 2, which would be good tidings of great joy for all people. For all people. God orchestrated salvation not just locally, but globally for us. Then secondly, God orchestrated salvation prophetically. Prophetically, and we've already talked about this, but down through history, God declared certain signs through the prophets that if mankind paid attention to, they would recognize the Messiah and believe in him. The Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Christ ever came, contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Now, I'm not a math scholar by any means whatsoever, but mathematically speaking, the odds of one person fulfilling the amount of prophecy are staggering. Mathematicians put it this way. One person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies um, given a few hundred years before would be one in 100 quadrillion. A person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. And one person fulfilling 300 prophecies, we'll we'll put it like this, only Jesus, only him. God orchestrated these events prophetically. Then third, He orchestrated salvation humbly. He orchestrated salvation humbly. I was reading the big picture storybook, which is a kid's Bible every so often. I'll read that because it helps me see things in a different light. You can look down at me if you want to. But sometimes I just need a kid's point of view. Amen? Amen. And here's what it writes. It says, Caesar, the ruler of the Roman world, was showing the world how great he was by counting all his people. But God, the ruler of the universe, was showing people how great he was by becoming one of his people. Caesar was showing his greatness by counting the people. God was showing his greatness by becoming one of his people. With his conception and his birth... Jesus arrived bathed in humility. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that we sons of men might become sons of God. Let me say it again. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that we sinful sons of men might become sons of God. And here's the beautiful thing about what God did. We think of, you give any one of us in this room that amount of sovereignty for one day and we will become vicious dictators. And yet God has that power for all of eternity and yet He responds in humility. This is only, only our God. And then fourth, God orchestrated salvation mercifully. Mercifully. Did you know that mercy and sovereignty must go together? And what I mean by that is this, no one orchestrates their own mercy. Mercy is mercy because there is someone who is superior over you who decides whether you will receive punishment or whether punishment will be withheld from you. We are undeserving of God's mercy, but get this, praise God, He is merciful. Let me say it again, we are undeserving of God's mercy, but praise God, He is merciful. All of the circumstances of the Christmas story were orchestrated to provide salvation for the world. The circumstances of the Christmas story were controlled by God and God alone. The same God who controls our lives this very day. What is God doing? God is accomplishing His purposes in His world. And let me just remind us this morning, the same God who was sovereign over the Christmas story that we celebrate this month is also sovereign over every life in this room and every life in this world. This is our God. So how do we respond? How should we respond? How will we respond to this sovereign God? I think Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, gives us an amazing picture of how we should respond. He says this, The sovereignty of God is often questioned because man does not understand what God is doing. Because he, being God, does not act as we think he should, we conclude that he cannot act as we think he would. How shall we respond? And listen to what he says. Our first response should be one of trust, confidence in the sovereignty of God. If there is a single event in all the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we can't trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust him. But thanks be to God, we can. We can trust Him. For nothing is outside of His ability to rule or to overrule or to say it like we do often. God gets the last word over every detail in our lives. Over sickness, over pain, over circumstances, over others. God gets the last word because He is sovereign. Therefore, we can trust Him now and we can trust Him forever. Praise him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, praise him that we can trust him, that he is sovereign, that we are not. For if we thought, if we were sovereign for a day, we would mess it all up. Because we would be sovereign, but we would not be all wise. Thankfully, he is all wise. He is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Let us trust him now. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to ask Brother Frank, the musician, to come forward this morning as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration let's just pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, our declaration to you this morning, God, is we believe and know that you are sovereign. You're not just sovereign over some things, God. You are sovereign. You are in control of all things. Amen. Lord, whether we understand it, God, sometimes we don't want it to happen, but it happens. And Lord, we believe that it happens because you have allowed it to happen. And if you allow it to happen, it means, Lord, that you have something good for it to produce in our lives. God, help us to trust your power, that you are all-powerful over every detail. You get the last word. Help us to trust your promises. You're working it all for good. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are our refuge. You're a help. You're a very present help in times of difficulty. And help us to trust Your Son. To trust Him for salvation. To trust, Lord, that He is interceding for us, as Your Word says. We thank You for all that we have in You. Help us to trust You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.